It is a Thursday, and that means a number of things. It's the day before Friday. It is heading into an extended weekend because of Memorial Day, of course. And it's also time for Perspectives. From WFSU Public Media, I'm Tom Flanagan, and you are always welcome to be part of the conversation wherever that might wander at 850-414-1234. You can also zip us an email, perspectives at wfsu.org, if that is your preferred mode of communication. Boy, just yesterday, did you hear about this? A congressional panel got together at Tallahassee City Hall to talk about Florida's newly passed election laws, which came out of the 2022 session. Meanwhile, at a meeting of Florida's supervisors of elections held in Central Florida, the state's newly appointed Secretary of State, Cord Byrd, assured attendees that Florida's new elections police, as they're called, would not be an intimidating factor at polling places. And then the on-again, off-again status of Florida's 5th Congressional District, now occupied by Congressman Al Lawson, which was redrawn by Governor DeSantis and subsequently approved by the legislature, remains tangled up in judicial proceedings and may not be decided in time for the November election. That's just a few of the things that are going on relative to the impending electoral cycle. And this is a very timely thing because it coincides with what is going on at the moon in Tallahassee tonight, which is the latest in a continuing series of created equal community forums co-sponsored by the Village Square and Leon County government. And this one is going to focus on, you guessed it, elections and race. Talk about a cosmic convergence. We could not have planned that any better. But we did plan to bring in some representatives from tonight's presentation to kind of give a little preview and a foretaste of what we're going to be talking about and also to extend an invitation. And I think there is still accommodation to be had, Eliza Chase, with the Village Square. Is there not? Are there still openings? Can people still come? Yes, there are absolutely openings. And we encourage everyone to come tonight. Okay, because 5.30, I think, is the kickoff, correct? Yes, the event starts at 5.30, and we will have pizza and drinks available, so you don't have to eat dinner. You can just come at 5.30. And for those of us who have not eaten anything yet, that will be a big relief, I am sure. Anyway, you just met Eliza Chase from the Village Square and uh, one of the main organizers for the whole thing, and we'll get more into that a little bit later. But we also wanted to bring one of the panelists tonight, of which there are three three who will be on the stage. One of them is going to be Dr. Sharon Austin, professor of political science at the University of Florida. Also, Dr. Keith Parker from Mississippi. He is founder and executive director of the National Education and Empowerment Coalition and chair of the annual National Civil Rights Conference, which is held in Meridian, Mississippi each year. And our own Professor Michael Morley from the FSU College of Law, who has been very much on top of all the electoral stuff, and he joins us today. Michael, it is good to see you, sir. Thank you very much for having me. And since, of course, this is a co-presentation of Leon County government, we have Royal King here with us. Royal, it is good to see you, sir. Tom, it's always great to see you. 
Well, we've got a, a full panel here, and again, you are invited to be part of this conversation, too, whether or not you uh, are able to go to tonight's uh, presentation at the moon, and that is 850-414-1234. For those folks who don't know Eliza Chase, let's talk about Created Equal, and this is part of an ongoing series. So how did how did the Village Square get involved in this particular line of conversation? Yeah, so it's been a focus of ours for several years now. This is actually the seventh annual Created Equal, and it's a part of the Club of Honest Citizens, which is a joint program that we uh, host with Leon County. And every year we pick a good topic, and, and you said it yourself. We are good at picking the topics that are that are uh, certainly being focused on in the community. So this is our seventh annual one, and this year we're focusing on race in our elections. Um, you know, last year... We had our only digital event um, where we focused on Leon County's Emancipation Day. And then, you know, two years before that, we were focused on uh, the 60th an- uh, anniversary of the lunch counter sit-ins. So, so we, are, we are certainly excited to get back in person at the moon, have everyone join together for this conversation. Uh, one of the things that the Village Square focuses on is bridging divides between people who don't look or think alike. And this uh, this program certainly falls in line with that. Well, since it is potentially a bit, dare we say, controversial, <laughs> that may be a bit of an understatement. A lot of times local governments do not want to get involved in such things. But Royal King, Leon County just jumped right in on this and said, hey, count us in. We want to be a co-presenter of this series. Yeah, absolutely. And and we think it's very important. Um we, we are a government agency, but we have to be involved in what uh, the citizens of our community are dealing with uh, to, one, educate, but then also uh, have those uncomfortable conversations about what's happening uh, so that people can be the best voting citizens, best empowered citizens, and just best representatives of our county, right? So um, you are, to your point, very right. It, it's a bold step, but uh, here in Leon County, we understand that there's no growth in just doing what others are afraid to do. You have to engage in those things uh, that some don't so that we can grow and really be a better community. Yes, move forward seriously and bravely, I think, was uh, what I heard from one of your county compadres here not too long ago. But we really need to get into the nuts and bolts of what we're going to be kind of addressing tonight. And at full disclosure, and uh, it is with great honor that... uh, uh, I accepted the uh, job of moderating this incredible panel of uh, this evening, so I wanted to put that out there. There is a personal involvement here, although we're going to try to keep this right as much down the middle as we possibly can. But uh, Professor Morley, from the historical aspect, we have been voting in this country as a democracy since the very, very earliest days. That's a foundational principle of this form of government that citizens a growing number of citizens. Originally, it wasn't quite as inclusive as what we have today. Uh, we're supposed to make the decisions when it came to who would represent them in this representative republic form of government. You would think that after all these years, we'd kind of have it down to, if not a science, certainly an art. Why do we keep changing it? So I think that there are a few reasons. One of the major types of changes that we see is expansion of opportunities to vote. If you you look back historically, there would be in in many jurisdictions – and again, it varies tremendously by state – but there would be an election day. You'd have to go there in person 
cast your ballot. And in fact, in in uh, many places, the government didn't even provide ballots. You would be the one bringing the ballot to the ballot box and political parties would hand out ballots that'd be different colors, different sizes, all decorated in part so they could make sure you were voting for the quote unquote right person because they could actually see what ballot you were depositing into the ballot box. So a, lo a, a lot of the changes that we've seen over the years have been about expanding access to voting, not just as you've, as you've suggested in terms of who is an eligible voter, right? We've amended the constitution several times to expand expand uh, eligibility for voting, to prohibit discrimination based on race, to prohibit discrimination based on sex, to prohibit discrimination with regard to federal elections for those who can't pay poll taxes or abolishing the poll taxes, holding that unconstitutional, expanding access yet again to those who were, who were at least 18 years old. But then on a, on a statutory level, the creation of absentee voting, the creation of early voting, the creation of other opportunities for voting beyond just having to show up in person on election day itself and cast a ballot. So in part, many of the changes that we've seen are opportunities to expand, not only expand the electorate, but expand opportunities for voting. Some other measures that we've seen then have have the, 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 the justification put forth, the rationale put forth are so-called election integrity measures to ensure that not only are we ensuring that eligible voters are able to cast ballots, but that those ballots aren't diluted or nullified or effectively canceled out by either invalid votes or duplicative votes or votes from ineligible voters, you know, certainly in the extreme case, fraudulent votes. And so again, different different jurisdictions experiment with different, uh, uh, different security type protocols, different measures to try to ensure the integrity of the outcome. And then in, in many of the other types of changes we've seen have been about expanding transparency, right? Requiring uh, election officials, for example, to, can, to update the public continuously about the, the outcome of the vote count to ensure that poll watchers have access to not just the polling places, but uh, facilities where absentee ballots are being processed and counted to ensure uh, public confidence in the outcome of the election. So there are many different types of changes to the election code, and particularly if you look at the evolution of Florida's election code, both over the long term as well as within the past 20 years. And I think that different types of changes are rooted in different types of goals. And really, that's where a lot of the controversies about the electoral process stem from, that a sound election process is balances many different factors. It balances ensuring that every eligible voter has a reasonable opportunity to vote safely while also ensuring that the outcome of the election is accurate, while also bolstering public confidence in the process, right? Not just actual accuracy, but the appearance of legitimacy, the appearance of, of accuracy. And different people might place different weights on those on those different factors or just disagree about whether whether a particular balance of factors in a underlying a particular policy is is justified or not. Well, as the old saying goes, perception is everything. Or even perception is reality. And one thing I wanted to, as we're spinning here towards a break, and I don't want to, again, uh, pose a very complex and involved question and then have to say, oops, we'll be right back. But one thing we can be thinking of is how much of what we're attempting to do in that balance, Michael, that you were just iterating when it comes to the balance between voter access and voter integrity is a matter of perhaps not mechanics or reality, but just 
perception on the part of some folks and uh, how much of this we might be attempting to solve that perhaps does not really even need a solution. Although we can certainly talk about it, and we will talk about it in just a moment, right here on Perspectives from WFSU Public Media, 850-414-1234, or drop us an email, perspectives at wfsu.org. We'll be right back. Hey, we're back on Perspectives talking about election integrity, also electoral access, and a preliminary look at what's going to be taking place at the Moon in Tallahassee tonight starting at 5.30. The Village Square and Leon County government as part of the created equal series of public discussions is inviting you and anyone you'd care to bring with you to that get-together tonight as we uh, talk about race and elections. One of our panelists, Michael Morley, law professor at Florida State University, here with us, along with Eliza Chase from the Village Square and Royal King from Leon County Government. And you can always catch a Perspectives program online, even if you miss it on air, because we post them on WFSU.org, usually within 24 hours of when the program actually appears on the radio near to you, so you can go back and check it out again and again. Back to that perceptual thing, though, Eliza, and maybe that is kind of where the Village Square comes in, too, because that's what these forums usually deal with. There is a public perception out there that a particular issue is of major importance, and you bring people from all sides of the political spectrum, hopefully, and other viewpoints to thrash these things out. So how, if you can just give us a little preview, how do you think this is going to play out tonight when you have these competing things, as Michael said, that are in the mix on elections? Thanks, Tom. I think that's a really good point that you made. Um, it, it is a very hot-button issue right now, but as our president and founder, Liz Joyner, would say, it's hard to hate close-up. And what I mean by that is this is a very controversial topic, and many people have a lot of opinions that they're very set in. But one of the things that's nice about a Village Square program and Created Equal in particular is that we have people that are learning about the issues during the panel discussion with our experts. And then the beauty happens in our audience discussions. And so they'll really get to dive deep in with one another as they're sitting across from one another and talk about these issues. And I think that, you know, the, the idea of, of rigid perceptions on the world gets broken down when you hear other people's perspectives close up. Um, so, so that's one benefit of, of this program is that, that it, it is really hard to hate close up. And you have such a diversity of folks who are involved in the discussion. And, and Royal King, maybe that's where, again, the opportunity to sit down with folks who have a, a, a totally different look at the world because of their experiences and what they have dealt with in the course of their lives, which may be very, very different from yours. So whereas, you know, I, I can look at this and say, well, gee, I never have any trouble voting. Someone else in the community might say, well, yeah, but I do, and here's why. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so 
uh, bringing together different perspectives, right, to, to engage in this conversation only helps everybody. Um, you, you talked about uh, some of the law changes we've seen specifically here in Florida. A lot of people in, in some of the communities of color aren't that familiar. And so this is an opportunity to, one, bring some light to that, uh, but also have different, uh, a conversation with people from varying uh, ideas and perspectives on uh, how it will affect people, but then also educating so that when people do go to the polls, they know, hey, you may have been able to hand out water before, but now you might be in a situation to where you could catch yourself in some legal trouble. So I think it's extremely important um, uh, as an organization, we, we kind of lead the charge and partner, partnering with Village Square to have this kind of event where we bring people from different backgrounds with different identities, different perspectives to have this conversation and not saying one way is right or wrong, but by doing it, we can at least all grow and have some understanding on each side as we go into this year's election process. That's so uh, interesting that you you mentioned the, the handing out of water, which is now precluded by Florida statute, because Michael Morley, I remember when political parties used to hand out booze in the uh, if not in the election line it would be either before or immediately after the casting of ballots and that was just taken for granted hey it was you know every election day was party time central in many parts of this country absolutely george washington himself found that handing out booze to, to at the polling place was an essential part of of, of electoral victory back in his pre-presidential days <laughs> yeah and so we do, we don't we don't have a law against that now so i guess you know water is off but maybe my ties are okay i don't know <laughs> That sounds like a pending court case here. But we're just coming off of a an election that I remember because we, we covered the, the news conference right after the, the 2020 election that Governor DeSantis and other state officials said, hey, we did pretty good in Florida. Maybe there were problems in other states, but to our way of evaluating what happened, we, we did well. But then we went and changed a whole bunch of things. And it, I guess it begs the question, why? Why did, why did we do that? You talked about some of the reasons that we have to keep you know, modifying processes to be in line with technology or changing conditions or whatever. But here, it's like my car has never been running better. So let me put some sugar in the gas and see if that will make it run even better than that. Why? Well, in part, one of the uh, one of the issues about the the 2020 election is that uh, it was conducted in the midst of a global pandemic, and so there were there are emergency type measures that are applicable in the context of something like COVID, for example, that may or may not be part of the permanent election code, permanent structure of of, of election law, and so one question, not just in Florida but nationwide, is. Okay, some of these extraordinary measures that were taken as a response to COVID, do we want to allow all of these measures to, to continue to be used? Are there some that, that we want to focus on? Are there some that, that didn't quite work out the way that we wanted? Are there some that we want to make a permanent part of our election code that now that we've actually had the opportunity to, to, to see them in action, we think that this is, the, that, 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 that this is a good way to, to, allow, to allow people to vote. Following the, the 2020 election, right, obviously there were a lot of unsupported, unfounded allegations about you know, widespread systemic fraud and space lasers and votes, millions of fraudulent votes. You can't base sound public policy on just completely hypothetical, fabricated 
falsehoods. And so that would not be a sound basis for trying to adopt new changes to, to an election law. However, right, on a on a provision by provision basis saying people people move around a lot. Does the does the fact that um, you can can we necessarily count on the fact that two ele- two elections ago this was the, this was this was their address is that necessarily still their address in large part that's an empirical question right how many how many absentee ballots from 3 year old requests are getting bounced back or not right i mean a, lo- a lot of the changes i don't really think you can look at in the abstract and just say like they're good they're bad anything that increases security is 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 automatically good everything's a matter of trade offs and you certainly don't want to make it harder for anyone and you certainly don't want to make it harder for members of traditionally marginalized communities or traditionally disenfranchised communities to vote if you're not actually particularly if you're not getting anything out of it if 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 the if the supposed benefits to security or the supposed benefits to election integrity actually aren't materializing and so a lot of what in the press and in political debates gets framed as like the, the these really emotional type issues I like to look at more like in the weeds, like voter ID, for example. What are the nuts and bolts reasons why it's hard for members of certain communities to get ID? Is it something that the DMV hours are too short? Is it something that simply the locations where they're able to get ID have been have been shut down? Right now, we're not talking about big picture voter ID issues. Now we're talking about nitpicky nuts and bolts. What are the hours of your local motor vehicle office? What are the locations of the motor vehicle offices? Right. We we can have ID systems if they're based on methods of identification, right, opportunities for identifications that are that are accessible to members of, of, of different communities. And so like thinking about like a big picture issue like voter ID doesn't necessarily have to have disparate impacts, doesn't necessarily have to be unduly burdensome based on technical details like what sorts of IDs are you are, are you accepting? What, how easy is it for people to get those types of IDs? How easy is it for states and Florida in particular making it for people to get copies of their birth certificate they, again for people who who you know don't 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 have a lot of money what as you had said before what might seem like a marginal fee to you could for getting a copy of their birth certificate could be a major deterrent could wind up being a, a, a major impediment and so talking about those sorts of very detailed things like how much does it cost to get a birth certificate can you get a free copy of your birth certificate or if you if you if you if you're using it for to get an ID I think that it's a lot easier to get consensus and to find common ground and to come up with good policy that achieves all of those different goals of an electoral process, right? Expanding access, ensuring security, promoting public confidence. If you're able to work out those kind of technical, not really so interesting issues that most 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 public debates just kind of gloss over. Yeah, but that's where the devil is in the details and the fact that so many folks in the electorate, in the general public, are not aware of a lot of these particular kinds of considerations. And Eliza, isn't that kind of what the Village Square forums are about is to try to promote a more well-informed body politic to help inform some of these decisions? So it's not just government is something that happens to us, but it's something that we can participate in and kind of guide along the way to better outcomes. Right, Tom. I I think that that's part of what the Village Square does. I mean, certainly we focus on, you know, a broader array of issues, racial issues, religious issues, um, but we also focus on political issues. And I think 
the thing that we do that the village square does that sets us apart is we don't project a certain um, opinion about any government policy. What we do is we take a deep dive, a nuanced um, view of that, and we look at it from different perspectives. And so we will have a panel on that will have varying perspectives, lived experiences, and so on, um, generally to talk about a specific government issue. Because we not only want to inform our audience about the issue, but we also want them to learn how to have conversations about that issue in a nuanced way and, you know, not be so rigid in their opinions and, and learn from other people. And so so that's what we're focusing on doing. That's, a, I think, an aspirational goal that is, to many ways of thinking today, almost unachievable. And, and, and Royal, you, you have heard some of these discussions also where people don't just, oh, this individual has a different take on tax policy than I do, and we're going to have to sit down and thrash that out. No, because of that difference of opinion, they are intrinsically evil. <laughs> I mean, I can't, I can't talk to this person. They're a bad person because of the way that they approach different subject matters that I don't agree with. How do you break that down today? Well, one of the ways is by uh, having a free free meal. <laughs> uh, but when it, when in all seriousness, um, uh, creating a venue for that conversation to have. So we'll set some rules prior to the event starting, kind of guiding people, right, that, you know, it's okay to agree and disagree, but you have to come in open-minded in whatever your views are. And because a person may sit differently on how they think about uh, some of the laws or just anything, period, doesn't mean they're good or bad, right? So we'll set some ground rules. Um, but one of the things um, we, we want to leave with, hopefully, maybe having an answer to, but in this event, we want to really find out, are our elections fair and secure for everyone? And should we be doing more um, from a, a county perspective? Um, should we be doing more? Well, one of the things that the county was doing today, as we mentioned at the outset, was our supervisor of elections, a guy by the name of Mark Early, was taking part in a statewide meeting of election supervisors down in central Florida. They got to meet the new secretary of state, who's already a, a somewhat polarizing uh, figure, if you believe some of the news accounts that are out there, but trying to get some, I guess, uh, direction from the top in how we can proceed given some of the new legal realities within our election system. And, and Michael, back to you on this then. Uh, this is like an ever ongoing learning curve for our elections people, many of whom do not get paid. They are volunteers. You bring them in every two years to help out, and it's not a, a huge staff, I think, in in any subdivision in Florida, right? Right. I mean, our and again, going back to the 2020 election, it, it really is the election personnel who were the heroes that in the midst of a global pandemic, they were able to conduct a free, fair, safe election and were able to allow the public to, in particular, in Florida in particular, to be able to have confidence in the results. So we wouldn't be able to have the process at all without people who were willing to devote their time to, to provide that critical public service.
And and now, again, we're dealing with some new situations. I heard uh, Mark come out not too terribly long ago saying that, again, if you have any questions about what you can and cannot do and how the vote-by-mail system is going to be modified somewhat, where the drop boxes are going to be, when you can that that all is listed certainly on the supervisor's website, but um, he's even happy to have people call in and, and just talk to his staff to get better direction on what to do for the upcoming election, which we have a primary in August. That's just a couple months off. And there's a new set of uh, rules that uh, people are going to have to play by in order to participate in the election. Eliza, what about the uh, the bubbles that we live in? And we all do, you know, we pride ourselves. This was the last Village Square. I remember that, uh, that, gee, I am an open-minded person and I am always taking in new information and I have no ax to grind on either side. No, we all do. And we have a tendency to hew towards those opinions that most closely sync with ours. But how do you break people out of, how do you pop the bubble? at the Village Square. Right. Um, I think the event that you're referencing is Kurt Gray, Intellectual Humility, and I would encourage anyone who thinks that they may be living in a bubble to check out that program on our website. Um, you pop the bubble by getting simply by getting people to talk to one another. Um, so the biggest enemy right now is the silos that we live in and mainly live in through technology, our phones, what we consume through social media, it's confirmation bias. We have an opinion and we want it to be right. So we look up the first, you know, um, we do a quick Google search and the first answer that tells us that we're correct, we roll with it and we continue on. And unfortunately, I think it's become a crutch for us. Uh, we're losing as a society in general our critical thinking skills and the humility that comes with being wrong. Um, we we are wrong sometimes. And so what the Village Square is trying to do is to sit down and have people talk with one another. And the whole point of our, of our panels is to have this... Um, this these group of people who respect each other, who know each other, but may disagree with one another. And if you see a group of panelists doing that, then why can't you do it? You know, and so one of the things that we try to do at the Village Square is, is build friendship across divides. And so if you have, if you are friends with someone, if you have things in common with them, if you share life experiences with them, then suddenly the politics don't matter as much. They're very important, mind you, but it's okay sometimes to be wrong and it's okay sometimes to disagree. Because we are all wrong at some time. We're talking to uh, some folks involved with this evening's uh, presentation coming up at the Moon, co-hosted by the Village Square and Leon County government called Created Equal Race and Elections. And you are invited to be part of our discussion now at 850-414-1234 here on Perspectives from WFSU Public Media. Alex, hang on the line. You'll be up first when we return.
We are back on Perspectives, and we are joined by Alex on line one as we discuss uh, race and elections and access and integrity and all those good things. Alex, thanks so much for calling. Welcome to Perspectives. Well, thank you, and thank you for doing this topic. I think this is sounding like a pretty interesting uh, event that they're going to be holding. Uh, I would caution them, however, not to have a cavalier attitude that was uh, presented a little earlier on the program, that there's no need to look at an election to integrity because it's all based on conspiracy theories with uh, lasers from aliens in outer space and stuff like that. The reality is that perceptions are the reality. And we know that in this last election, more than any other election in living memory, there is serious questions about whether the outcome was fair and free or if there was fraud involved. So it doesn't really matter whether it occurred or didn't occur when 40% of the people think that there was malfeasance on the part of uh, the elections. That means that you have to address the problem. And, uh, you know, the fact of the matter is there were a lot of things that were done in that election that were not done in other elections. The drop boxes, for example, and they have, you know, video footage, security footage of people dumping you know, tens and dozens of ballots, which is those are all all except one of those ballots has to be invalid according to state law. So there is an obvious case for whether or not the election was done properly. I myself know people who have bragged to me about how they vote twice in the elections routinely because they own property in, a, in another state and they do a mail in ballot for that state. And then they also do the state that they live in. And there's there's little that states do in order to prevent that, if anything. And I also know from personal experience that if you do mail-in ballots, I helped a couple of people in the last election, there's hardly any safeguards to prevent uh, people from fraudulently claiming that there's someone else when they do mail-in ballots. All they ask basically is your name and your birth date. If you have that information, you can do a mail-in ballot in California. And you know, you can even do it multiple times. If you get, you just tell them you lost the first one, you need another one, and you need another one. You could do it several times. So the ability is there. Whether or not it was used or not is a question. But the perception that it was used is widespread. And everybody agreed before this election and even after the election that the perception of election integrity was vital. So if that's the case, yes, you have to do something. You have to rein it in. You're going to have to make it more difficult so that people trust the votes, because anybody in this audience from Florida remembers the year 2000, the, the, the uh, chorus was, every vote matters. You cannot destroy my one vote. I don't care if you have to recount all the votes and count the hanging chads. Every single vote matters. And that the same thing applies for invalid votes. If you have an invalid vote, you're taking away somebody else's vote. So we should all be able to agree, Republicans and Democrats, that election integrity is vital. There needs to be some sort of uh, uh, controls that are beefed up. And it appears to me that what the legislature has done has done that. And we can't just constantly go back and say, well, we've always been making it easier and easier. So therefore, we have to just keep making it easier. No, that doesn't hold water anymore. Okay, well, Alex, we, we happen to have a, uh, a member of uh, Governor Ron DeSantis' Criminal Punishment to Code Task Force here with us today in the uh, persona of Professor Michael Morley. And uh, I uh, invite him to address some of the issues that you brought up, uh, if, you, if you could, Alex. Okay? Sure. So I do think that it's important to distinguish between 
Is the problem a lack of public confidence and faith in elections or are there – is there actual you know, systemic widespread fraud going on? Because we, we can go back, for example, to the, to the 1990s. The, the city of Miami had a mayoral election thrown out due to fraud. The city of Hialeah had an election thrown out due to fraud. So it's not that – and that, that I think anyone on any side is denying the possibility that it could exist. What they're saying is looking to this – looking into the 2020 election in particular – there is no evidence that whatever hypothetical possibilities one could point to actually did occur and certainly that it occurred on anything resembling a, a, a systemic or, or a widespread level. To the extent that the, that, the, that the problem is more, as you were saying, public confidence in the electoral process, public faith in elections or worry about fraud, I think, I think that that would calls for something of a different remedy. That calls for greater transparency in, in the electoral process. It calls for greater public education. To take the last example that you, that, that you had raised just to, to show that it's not uh, – the problem isn't with the electoral process, but rather perhaps just public awareness of some of the security measures in place. Yes, you if, if you request an absentee ballot, you could contact the supervisor of elections office, say, I lost my ballot. I mismarked my ballot. I just you – know, the, the dog ate my ballot. Please send me you know, – please send me a – please send me another ballot. And then you, now you now you have two absentee ballots, but they're not going to count both of them. Once your first absentee ballot gets back, you are marked now as having voted. So if you then wind up fraudulently sending back that second ballot, it'll get rejected on the grounds that that you that um, you've you've already cast your vote. Your vote your vote has already been cast. The same way, if you sent in an absentee ballot, if that ballot were processed prior to election day and you showed up to vote on election day, they're not going to let you cast a, a second vote. In contrast, if you send in your ballot, you show up on election day, you vote on election day, then that will be counted as your vote and they won't process your they, they won't process your absentee ballot. So there are a lot of things that as a voter, you it might seem like, oh, here's an insecurity in the system. Here's a way somebody could beat the system or somebody could 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 engage in in fraud. But you, when you actually sit down with supervisors of elections, they can tell you, here are the processes we have in place. Here are the checks we have in place in order to ensure those types of problems don't happen. And I think that particularly to the extent public confidence in the electoral process has been undermined, greater awareness of those types of pre-existing mechanisms could help to alleviate that. So it's not just a matter of let's have more and more and more restrictions regardless of how much harder that makes it to vote in order to bolster public confidence if the existing processes are already enough to be able to deal with and prevent most of the types of concerns that that that, that voters are identifying. I talked to a gentleman, a former Tallahassean, and we did a news story on this not too terribly long ago, that in response to some of these perceptions that Alex just talked about, uh, this guy and his company came up with a new paradigm of voting, which essentially piggybacks off of scratch-off lottery tickets, which he documented in uh, various publications, has never really been hacked into. You're dealing with a lot of money here, but uh, and, and you know people could go wandering into a convenience store, say, "Hey, my my pick tick hit, and you got to give me money," and then they check it with the database. Nope, sorry, it wasn't you. Uh, but to use that type of technology as a voting system, so each voter gets a scratch off ticket that contains 
QR codes that are only identified with that voter, and then that is used to obtain a supervisor of elections ballot, and it ties the two together so there can be only one ballot cast per person. Would something like that maybe alleviate some of the perceptions again that there are all these possibilities of fraud or improper procedure or votes not being counted or counted too often? What, what do you think, Michael? I, I haven't heard that particular uh, yeah, that that particular proposal, so I'd certainly want to learn more about the about the details of of, of how it wor- would work. I, what I can tell you from having spoken with many county supervisors of election is many of them would love nothing more than the opportunity to tell the public, here are the existing safeguards we have in place. Here's everything that we are currently doing to ensure that the people that, – that the uh, these absentee ballots are actually being cast by the people who we think they're being cast by. For example, if there's not a signature match, for example, then the, 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 if, if, the, if the signature voter signature on record doesn't match the voter signature on the ballot, the supervisors of elections office then reaches out to the voter to give them an opportunity to, to resolve that discrepancy because, again, that signature match is one of, the, one of the existing tools that's used to try to ensure that people aren't stealing absentee ballots out of the mail, that they're not just you know, taking, taking people's absentee ballots, that the ballots are being cast by the voters by the voters who are who who we think they're coming from and so I, th- I think an awful lot of supervisors would appreciate the opportunity to be able to walk through and again many of them are enthusiastic if, if, if you if, when you when you talk to them to be able to look at the various steps they have in place to try to combat fraud to bolster integrity bolster public confidence as a matter of fact one thing the legislature did, a few years ago is jo- is join an interstate organization that that I think about 25 states are currently members of where they share voter registration information with each other in order to identify outdated registration records duplicate registration records if somebody moves to a different state and registers in that other state the system will flag that to let Florida know okay they're not they're not living here anymore they've you know, they, they they've moved off to, to one of the other member states unfortunately not every state in the country has yet joined has has yet joined that network yeah I was very enthusiastic to see to see that Florida did so because again that that is a win-win situation right if you're not living in Florida nobody is saying you should you should continue to 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 automatically be able to vote here indefinitely and yet that's the sort of thing where, where we can bolster public confidence where we can help to help to ensure that only valid voters are voting without creating unnecessary barriers with that particularly without having you know, racially disparate impacts or doing anything else that would undermine public confidence in the electoral process. So, Royal King, not asking you to opine or to take a position on this, but is this going to be part of this discussion tonight? Okay, as Michael said, there seem to be a lot of uh, safeguards in place to ensure integrity, maybe not 100 percent, but pretty darn close to it. But if we keep trying to restrict access to ballots, it again begs the question why if that is not the source of of fraud and uh, malfeasance on the part of voters why do we keep saying it's sort of like you know fewer voters fewer problems yeah yeah so um yes uh 
Uh, it, it is our intent to ha- get into that conversation as well. And two, um, supervisor election, you know, won't be there for, for the reasons you mentioned, but people from his team will be there just providing some education related to what they actually do, too. So, um, yeah, we are hoping uh, that in this conversation, uh, again, not saying what's right and what's wrong, that we have that discussion and, and hear both sides. And people could even volunteer to be part of the process here because uh, I remember the last time we voted in person at our precinct, uh, the uh, person in charge said, boy, we could use some additional volunteers to help out because we're getting an inordinate number of in-person voters right now. We thought because of the pandemic there'd be fewer, but at our precinct, we're seeing a lot of folks and we need need the help. So, gee, volunteerism in government, is that another Village Square uh, first principle that you're trying to promote here, Eliza? Sure. I mean, it's in general engagement within the community, and and that includes, you know, volunteering and being a part of the community. And if that means, you know, becoming a poll worker, then then that is absolutely needed, and that's great. Yeah, because you can see that up 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 close, and as as you indicated, Michael, because this is another one of these wonderful, kind of like Chihuahua in the microwave urban myths that are out there. The box of ballots that suddenly appeared from under a table in downtown Atlanta as Fulton County was going through 2020. And, uh, you know, again, if those ballots did not sink, if they'd already been cast, they don't just deliver boxes of ballots and say, hey, we have 2,500 new votes. Let's just throw them into the system. They have to correspond with who has already voted or who has yet to vote. And then the signatures got to match and all that stuff. That's absolutely right. And, and again, here in Florida in particular, that's a big part of the role of the canvas, right? You might have heard like the county canvas or the state canvas where you're balancing out how many people signed into each polling place. How many how many votes were cast altogether in that polling place? So if there's a major discrepancy, you can say, okay, maybe we didn't maybe we left out one of the memory cards from from one of the machines, right? Certainly, if you had hundreds of more votes cast at a polling place than people who should than people who 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 signed in to vote, then that would that would be then basis for additional investigation. So I mean, built into the canvassing process, right? Yet again, are the types of cross checks that you would want that you would expect that help to both deter and I identify. And I and I want to emphasize, right? It's not just a matter of like fraud, right? Because again, fraud is a legal term. It, it implies all sorts of like mens rea and intent and everything. But a sound electoral process, right? You want to prevent just irregularities. You want to prevent mistakes. You want to prevent accidents, right? You you it, it might be like a lawful permanent resident, right, Re- registers to vote. So they're a non-citizen. Technically, they're 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 not allowed to vote. It's not a matter of necessarily fraud that they were doing so with some sort of fraudulent intent, but right, having checks in the process to ensure that that sort of thing doesn't happen. Again, you wouldn't call that fraud if nobody was deliberately or knowingly doing something wrong. And so, again, I think most people want the same things out of their elections. They want to be able to vote. They want to be able to not face, you know, a difficult, unreasonable burdens. They want the system to be sound and secure, the results to be accurate and reliable. And you know, once you go into it, again, right, assuming most people are looking to get the same things out of their electoral process – a lot of the issues then wind up boiling down to kind of relatively dry technical nuts and bolts. Okay, 
how best do what you know through what processes through what regulations through what procedures do we best achieve these shared goals and i and i think that it again the more understanding people have about how the current process how the current process works the more it moves away from kind of the the these hot button political issues into the drier technical more administrative issues or as alex indicated if you are constantly hearing through your sources of information, which, Eliza, you said can be kind of self-directed. I was looking for a pair of shoes not too long ago, and I clicked on one website, just one, honest to God, just one. And for the next three weeks, every pop-up ad in my news feed was for shoes. <laughs> you know, there's other things I'd like to buy, but it shows how... It can direct us in certain places onto the web. But for folks who maybe want to get more information than what is determined by algorithm, it behooves us all to kind of, again, get out of our bubbles and talk to other people who might not agree with our point of view and uh, uh, maybe hang out with the Village Square. And this might be a good time to tell people how to find out more before they go if they are interested in tonight's presentation. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Tom. So uh, everyone is invited to come, and you are encouraged to register for the event at leoncountyfl.gov backslash created equal, or you can call 850-281-1223. Wonderful. And uh, you'll be there tonight too, Roy? I'll be there, Tom. I'll be the first one in the line to get my pizza and my salad. <laughs> uh, greeting people and excited to to have a, a, a conversation and hopefully uh, the next steps afterwards. Okay. Well, the first steps will be the panel discussion featuring uh, Professor Michael Morley, who we've been talking to through this edition of Perspectives, joined by Dr. Sharon Austin from the University of Florida and Dr. Keith Parker, whose resume is too extensive to repeat right now. And uh, hope to see you there too. I'm Tom Flanagan. I'll be helping to moderate the whole thing. And we thank our group today on Perspectives, produced by WFSU Public Media in Tallahassee. Next week, it's the start of the Atlantic hurricane season, and we'll be tapping into some of the expertise and the resources available to hopefully counter the storms, which we pray to God do not hit us during the course of the next six months, right here on Perspectives from WFSU Public Media. Take care.